Thank you for listening to Tapping Into the Human, a podcast on addiction, recovery, and mental health, brought to you by The Albertus Project. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. Every week, you'll hear powerful stories from people about their journey with recovery and be inspired by individuals and organizations that are leading the charge in decreasing the stigma surrounding mental health and addiction. Angie, thank you so much for being here. Um, Everyone who's listening today, we are super lucky to have Angie Hamilton um, on our podcast. Uh, She's from FAR, or Families for Addiction Recovery. Um, With Angie, we're going to be discussing her family story, um, how addiction is really a family disease, and how best we can sort of support family members, uh, both in active addiction and in recovery. So Angie, thanks again for being here. Um, can you introduce yourself and give our listeners a little bit of a background on FAR and why it was created? Absolutely, and thanks uh, thanks for having me. Um, so uh, FAR was created in 2016 by a number of parents who, like myself, had uh, a child who struggled with addiction from, from their teens, really, from their early teens. And, um, and it was formed because the needs of our families aren't being met. And uh, we noticed that there's a that there's an there's an inability of families to intervene if if the children don't they have a problem and they often don't think they have a problem. So we do three three things at FAR. Uh, the first thing we do is we support other families who are um, having similar challenges, mm-hmm. uh, and we have three forms of support. We have uh, and all of them are free. We have online group support. We also have one-on-one where we assign uh, one of our 30 volunteers to the parents who sign up for the parent-to-parent program. And they will talk to, um, you know, whoever needs help for up to uh, eight times for an hour. It can be over a two-month wow. period. It can be over a year. It depends. Okay. Um, and uh, that, that's the most popular program that we have. Um, and then we have a, a phone line, a support line from 1 to 3 uh, Eastern time, Monday to Friday, which is very popular. It's manned by Sid. And yeah. She's <laughs> so, so those are the um, family support things that, that we do. And we also have a, a really resource-rich website, farcanada.org. The two other areas we're active in is one education, and I know it might sound crazy, but we're mm-hmm. busy educating the medical community. Uh, oh, you know. I get it. I'm learning that now. <laughs> so uh, we do that. Uh, we we like to talk to uh, police departments as well. We like well, Smart. honestly, we like to talk to anybody who will listen to us. Agreed. Uh, because it's a lot of work to do. And uh, then the last thing that we do is we advocate for changes that we think are needed. Um, both in terms of resources and services, like we'd really like to see treatment on demand uh, and more harm reduction services. And then we'd actually like to see some changes to our laws, both in terms of drug policy reform and in terms of more protective health laws for people who struggle particularly with addiction and mental health conditions. Yeah, no, 100%. No, I think that that's all great work. So in terms of your volunteers, how are they trained? Like, do they get a particular training to be able to, you know, be qualified to then be able to help the families? Great question. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Uh, our, our training is probably about uh, 25 to 30 hours. Wow. Um, and uh, our parents are trained in something called the invitation to change approach. Mm. Uh, which is run by the Center for Motivation and Change in the U.S. 
So we're actually trained by uh, U.S. professionals. And we, you know, we've, we've looked at a lot of different things and we like their approach. Their approach involves three evidence-based uh, treatments. One is um, CRAF, which is Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And it's, it's a non-confrontational, uh, compassionate mm. approach to the person who is struggling. Right. Like, uh, so, you know, often from the outside, you look at someone using substances and you think, what are they thinking? Like, can't they see this is, you know, yeah. and actually from their perspective, they're getting a lot out of it, right? There is mm-hmm. especially initially, right? So it's, and they often have ambivalence to change. So it's understanding that and, and the best way to do that is to apply it to your own life. And, you know, for, for people right. like me who are older, we can look at things that we would have liked to have changed 40 years ago. <laughs> we still <laughs> like to change them. And that makes it a lot easier to understand, right, right, right. you know, ambivalence. Yeah. Um, so it uses craft and it uses something called acceptance and commitment therapy. So that is basically, you got to accept what you can't change, right? right? And you can't change your loved one and, and you can't control the outcome. But the good news is you're not powerless uh, because you get to control what you say and what you do. And that's mm-hmm. actually quite a bit. And that can give you the power of influence right. and a better chance of maintaining a healthier bond with your loved one, right? Yeah. And then the last thing is motivational interviewing, which is sort of the opposite of sitting down saying, now, clearly what you need to do is this. (laughs) A, B, and C. (laughs) And especially as a parent and maybe as a lawyer, like, you know, that's sort of- Probably first nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's just sort of, uh, hmm, you know, like, how are things working for you right now? And where, where would you like to be? And what is working and what isn't working? And how can I help you instead of here's what you need to do, right? Yeah, my way or the highway sort of thing. Yeah. 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 No, I think that that's awesome. And I, I, so I was reading quite a bit on your website, Angie, just kind of your story. Um, and it's I, I learned quite a bit as, as I'm reading it. I mean, I'm six months into understanding really what addiction is, what it means, um, that it's not just a one-person disease. Really, it's family disease. It affects mm-hmm. those family members. So when I was reading um, your story, I saw that because your son was a minor, even though he was under the influence of you know potentially mind-altering substances, yeah. he needed to accept help voluntarily. Right. So what, what do you think the solution is? Because sometimes people who are 15, 16 are really struggling with their addiction and, you know, we can't, you know, force help. What do you think the solution is? Right. So I think we need to look at uh, improving our health laws, uh, which are designed to protect people. Um, they, they do, to a certain extent, protect people with other mental health conditions, but traditionally we haven't applied that to people with substance use disorder and i think that's what really needs to change and i think you know when i was talking about educating uh, the medical profession um i i do sit in canada on the policy committee of the canadian society of addiction medicine and and you know these issues are being discussed and raised and and worked on and so it's uh, you know everybody's aware there's a silo between you know addiction and mental health but there there also seems to be big silo between psychiatrists and addiction medicine doctors and mm-hmm. health health law and uh, the yeah. the practice of addiction medicine right, right. and we need to step back and say well okay like so if somebody had anorexia nervosa and they were you know they were 16 and they stopped eating um, would we just talk about their right to starve themselves to death and pat ourselves mm. on the back, right fighters? Or would we go, hmm, 
Their right to life conflicts with their right to refuse treatment. And they have a mental disorder, which is the reason right. why they aren't making decisions that other people would make. So to me, it, it's really no different with respect to substance use disorder. Uh, and so it's a question in each case of whether that person at that time has capacity to make treatment decisions mm -hmm. and if they're a harm to themselves or others and they aren't seeking treatment and they have a, a mental disorder. So I think right. we need to start having a lot of conversations about that and and a lot of conversations about regulating um, you know, the, the, the drug market because if you regulate it, you can make it a lot safer. Safer, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. and I, I've, I've learned a ton about that. You know, I think the typical, especially for people who don't understand addiction and, you know, maybe me six months ago is like drugs are, you know, in your school, you're taught when you're a kid, drugs yeah. are bad, do not right. do drugs. People who do drugs are bad. And so right. I'm saying, hey, listen, we know this is going to be a thing. At least we can help make it safe, a sterile environment, hygienic resources. So, no, I'm 100% I'm in agreement with that. And I also read, you know, in your story, you're talking about how, you know, there isn't necessarily a cure right for your son yeah. and 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 that's sort of the thing like you know this whole albertus project was founded in honor of you know one of my best friends reed who passed away from her addiction and her passion for wanting to help others even while she was struggling and i think a really important point for people maybe like myself who who didn't understand six months ago is it is a constant sort of part of recovery um and there isn't necessarily, it's not like you go to rehab. My thing was, oh, we went to rehab. She's cured. She's fine. And yeah. I've learned it's sort of like a lifetime of recovery. You're constantly working on it. What do you think the key to recovery is? Wow. <laughs> and that, that's a loaded question. But I, I mean, yeah. I've learned a lot. I think, I think there's a bunch of different keys. Sort of what's your take on that? Have you, before your son, um, you know, you knew about your son and you were trying to help your son. Were you under sort of the impression like I am, oh, well, if we just, you know, get him treatment, then he'll be fine. Absolutely. Absolutely. One and done, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like a surgery. You have like a herniated disc, you get your surgery yeah. and then you're fine. Absolutely. And, you know, understood withdrawal and everything, but thought that's a week. Right. And it isn't a week. Like it's, yeah. uh, you know, one thing that's just very humbling, you know, is to hear people who have you know, been doing well for years and then seemingly that, you know, to other people out of the blue, you know, right. they're, they're, they're problematically not. using substances again. Right. Right. And uh, it, you just never know when that's going to happen. And so I think every, you know, family member who has someone struggling with addiction, even when they get into recovery, there, there's always this feeling and you have to learn how to deal with it about, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, you know, are they going to be okay today? So it's it's that one day at a time. But, yeah. you know, what you said about what do I think it's important for people to do? I think it's important for everybody to realize this, this is chronic. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it needs to be managed just like any other chronic condition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when people work at it, and they do their best, you know, it, it, I think really helps them in the long term. And, everybody will tell you recovery isn't linear. It's not like, oh, I decide, yeah. you know, and it's straight line. It's all right. over the place, right? And what what you hope for is over time that, you know, the the um, return to problematic use is is uh, less and less frequent and, and mm -hmm. lasts, you know, uh, a shorter period of time each time, right? 
And, uh, and, and people are so unique. I mean, everybody's journey is different, but it really is, it's a learning process, learning how to deal with this chronic condition for you. And, and I would also say, you know, in my experience, if somebody start, starts using, you know, substances problematically when they're young, there is always other mental health conditions, you know, sure. that are, that need to also Address. be managed usually. Right lifetime whether it's anxiety depression you know and also a lot of them over time you know whether they had ptsd to begin with you know if they live in active addiction for you know a significant period of time i would say a lot of them develop ptsd because of horrible things that happen to them um you know when when they're struggling right no 100 percent um so as i said i'm new to understanding addiction um, and, and the one thing that I've sort of explored, I was like, you know, when I was starting this, okay, what is the Alberta's project's mission? Okay, it's to destigmatize, it's to educate. And I was thinking, okay, when we start raising funds and getting donations, I can help people get access to treatment because I know there's a long wait time, you know, for government ba- beds and all those sort of things. And then I realized, oh my God, it costs an insane amount of money. I, I thought, you know, oh my God, well, I can really help someone. But if I'm really thinking about in terms of, you know, what's going to be transformational, I'm probably going to be able to get one person a bed a year. And that's not enough. Well, that's that is exactly it. So, like, uh, you know, some people have said to us, why don't you, you know, do something so you can like. Right. Scholarships for, you know, a couple people a year to yeah. uh, go to treatment. And um, I just disagree with that a lot. You know, um, already Canadians who have money often you know they can't they're long wait lists in canada just like in the states but yeah uh, you know people who have money can jump the queue both in canada and they can take their loved ones to the states you know to get treatment um mm-hmm. so so we we have a two-tiered system already in canada and in the u.s really and those those who pay that's why everybody agrees you know uh addiction um doesn't discriminate but recovery absolutely discriminates. recovery 100 percent does and yeah. i've learned that yeah no it's yeah. it's it's such a shame and and the cost i mean i was going through your story and i was like that's sort of what i've been reading and hearing from other people it costs thousands of dollars to get help and what about people who are out on the streets don't have family don't have friends to support them exactly. it's like how are you supposed to be supporting these people and you know i was looking into it and i was like that is not transformative enough i think we got to talk about the underlying issue and then you know hopefully get people to a better place where you know governments aren't charging or you know there's not as much of a wait time or you know even private health care but it's that's one thing i've seen that's just i think a very very difficult issue for those who are in active addiction and recovery and who want to get help there's just not availability to get that help Absolutely. I mean, it's the same sort of problem in Canada and the U.S., but we come at it differently, right? Because you really don't have public uh, um, health care, but, right. but we're, we're supposed to have universal health care, right. but, but we don't really with respect to addiction. It's sort of like, you know, long-term care homes also, right? Like it's, uh, it, a lot of them are private and right. a lot of our um, substance use disorder rehabs are private. So um, we really, private, public, they need to be regulated and people mm-hmm. need treatment on demand and they shouldn't have to pay. Exactly. No, I'm 100% with you. Um, so another thing I, I think we were talking about at the beginning is, and one thing that I've learned and, you know, speaking with, with Reed's family is 
addiction does not obviously just affect the one person that's dealing with it. It's, it's family and sometimes can extend to friends. So in terms of the way that your uh, volunteers train family, would that be the same way? Like, what would you say if like a, a friend of mine was struggling with addiction? Do you have, do you say use the same kind of methods, tips and tricks, or is there something different because it's not a family member? Like, would you approach being able to equip someone, a friend of those in active addiction, the same way you'd equip someone with a, a family member who's in active addiction? That's a great question too. And we, we spend most of our time, not just with family members, but with parents, right? That's, mm. that's sort of our forte because that's who we are. Right. Um, that said, we do get siblings um, that, that call us as well. And, and now we're starting to get kids, like adult kids whose parents are struggling, right? Mm. So, but yes, it is essentially, it's essentially the same, um, which is uh, non-confrontational, um, collaborative, uh, compassionate approach. People use for a reason. We have to understand that. We have to help help them, to, you know, to have non-judgmental discussions with them so they feel free to talk and they understand. They empowered. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, well, at least not judged, right? Like that, yeah. that's, and that's why, like, it, it's hard to get parents whose kids are struggling to reach out for help. Um, because, because the stigma is so huge and, you know, frankly, often if, if the, if the person is relatively young, the problem with addiction is it, it's expensive. Unlike other illnesses, which are free, right. uh, this illness comes with a pretty big price tag, depending on what you're using and, and how often. So, um, you know, it's not uncommon for them to be doing things that are not good for themselves or others in order to acquire the funds to use, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that also can generate stigma and, and uh, feelings of guilt and shame in family members. And, and so we spend a lot of time explaining to people that this is an illness. And yes, sometimes, you know, for the most part, they're harming themselves primarily. But sometimes it does, you know, it does extend to other people. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because yeah. their illness has gotten the better of them. So I'll tell you one of, one of the examples I like to, I think it really drives home the point. So in Canada, uh, addiction, uh, substance use disorder is a disability under our human rights legislation. And so there are protections for people in the workplace. You can't fire someone for that or uh, you know they have to be accommodated right and right. so in 2019 we had a case where and and this isn't unusual uh where a nurse had been stealing pain meds uh, mm. you know she worked in uh like a long-term care facility and she'd been um stealing pain meds from patients right uh and she got caught and she went to treatment and she recovered and she wanted her job back and they said no and so her union representing her Took her, to, took her to the Human Rights Tribunal. Uh, and, um, you know, they said, yes, she has to be accommodated in the workplace. And they looked at, you know, they talked to addiction medicine specialists and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and they, they asked, you know, for their opinion on this. And, and, you know, what addiction is, which if the definition is basically compulsive or even like a lack of control over right. use, notwithstanding adverse consequences, it's self-harm, right? So it's, it's a lack of autonomy, not just with respect to your use, but sometimes what you have to do to use. 
Mm. So that's the piece that people, honestly, they don't, they do not want to accept that, you know, right. because if that's true, cripes, that really could happen to me and it could happen to somebody I love. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of comfort in thinking this addiction thing, especially if it's illegal drugs is happening to those bad people over there. And if they aren't bad, well, they, you know, the, they were raised by bad people and, exactly. you know, with no moral, you know, who are willing no to pain meds yeah. from patients and that kind right. of thing. And it's like, no, you know, they're ordinary people who are struggling with addiction, which is a lack of control over, you know, your use and what you have to do to use. And that's, that's the part to me that that's the story that's not getting told. It's what it really is. And it has gotten very sloppy and messy because it's tied in with illegal drugs. And we, so we've got legal drugs in Canada now, like alcohol and cannabis, and then we've got the illegal ones. And, you know, the natural assumption in that is, well, the legal drugs are safe and you're going to be okay if you use them. And these illegal drugs, they're not safe. And, and, and you're, so you're willing to take these risks. So you're a bad person. You deserve whatever happens. <laughs> and this distinction is ridiculous. Your body does not know the difference, right? Your body has no idea. Oh, this is legal. I'm going to react this yeah, way. Yeah, this is exactly. Legal. I'm going to react that way. Your body just goes, Hmm, this is, you know, this is how I'm reacting to this. And so we have to, we really have to um, look at our drug laws and we need to de- decriminalize the possession of drugs for personal use. Yep. And we have to regulate uh, substances in accordance with their harms. And then we can divide people with problematic use and non-problematic use. And we can let those with non-problematic use go about their day and their business and they will be protected because we've regulated the substance and they know what they're getting when they use, no matter what it is. Uh, And then we do, however, need to intervene for those who have lost control and who are at risk of serious harm. Right. Include criminalization. So if you're selling it to get it or if you're being sexually exploited to get it, uh, you, you need to be protected from yourself. And sometimes you need to be protected from other bad people who take advantage of that, exactly. right? Yep. So, so we, we need to rethink the whole drug policy and we need to rethink this idea of, you know, autonomy and agency, like agency and recovery is very important. Like, you know, people can recover in a lot of different ways. And um, sometimes when people hear me talk about, you know, need to intervene sometimes whether they want it or not they think i don't believe in harm reduction but i absolutely do really believe in harm reduction my point would be we have people today and more of them drinking themselves to death than using illegal drugs and dying right and they have a safer supply and they have no exactly and that's that's such a complex issue and and that's what i've learned like there's just so much to it and like there's not a one size fits all approach. And no. that's what's so difficult. And sort of going back to what you said, it's it's by person, right? And I mean, something as you know interesting as uh, I know Demi Lovato has got a lot of slack from those in the addiction community for saying, you know, California sober, you know, right. she, she drinks and then she, you know, smokes weed. And, you know, but she's gone on to say, hey, listen, like that is my experience. That's what works for me that is not going to work for, I would say the majority of people. And I think it's just, I think there's, it's such a complex issue and there's there's so much to it. The one thing that I so uh, sort of wanted to end on and get your your thoughts on is, 
when folks are coming to you, when parents are coming to you for help, what is the sort of number one or two questions that typically your volunteers are getting? What is the one thing that they are coming to ask you right away? You know, sometimes they do want you to tell them what to do, right? Especially mm -hmm. around boundaries. But for the most part, it's more what they need to hear. Mm -hmm. And what they need to hear is your kid is struggling and yes, sometimes doing bad things, but uh, they're not, a, that doesn't, they're not, they're a, bad not a bad person. And, um, and using substances just in and of, it, in and of itself, it, it, you know, that's not an inherently criminal thing. So they, they need to hear that and they need to, they need validation that, um, it, you know, if you have a kid who struggles, it doesn't mean you're a bad parent. They all yeah. have massive guilt and shame and they all think it's they their did something fault. Wrong. Yeah. They all think yeah. it's their fault. And, um, it, like we can all do better all the time. Right. Um, but that's not, it's the, it's the three C's honestly of like, uh, Al-Anon is you didn't control it. You can't cure it and you didn't cause it. Mm -hmm. And, um, those are, those are really important points, um, for families because, and, and then they can open up and start talking to people. Cause like the number of times people say, you're the first person I've been able to talk to yeah. and families get crappy advice from all kinds of people i'm sure professionals no too yeah but not in that area yeah it's it's such a complex thing and and i think that i mean i know from those in the community who say shame and guilt is you know a big thing and that's why when they relapse they don't want to come talk about it again you know all those sort of things and i sort of haven't thought about it from a parent's perspective of what did i do wrong why yeah. why is my kid like this like what did i screw up and that's why they're dealing with this when in reality it's it's not necessarily like that and they just need to know i feel like they need to let their guard down to like someone tell them hey like it's okay this is not your fault and we're gonna sort of help you through this yeah absolutely and it's like we we've been through this and and uh and we know what it's like we understand we understand right. what you're going through like you don't and, have and to sometimes that's what you need i mean when it comes to mental health too right like you know you just need to know that you're not alone and someone else has sort of walked this road and i think that that makes it a heck of a lot easier and i think with addiction too unlike you know i think about when i was a kid mental health wasn't talked about 10 years ago and now we're at such a better place you can take mental health days aside from sick leave days you have mental health awareness and I think one of the things, and I know we've, we've both sort of said it, is an education and uh, destigmatization piece where a lot of folks just don't get it. So they're yeah. automatically like, okay, well, you're the other. Oh, your kid has, you know, an, an addiction, is struggling. What did you do as a parent, right? Because mm -hmm. it's sort of like judgmental and absolutely there, there's that whole piece. But um, I was going to say we're, we're at 30 minutes, Angie. So thank you so, so much for being on well, the channel. Um, yeah. I was going to say, what's your website? Do you have Facebook? What, what can you tell the listeners so they can check you guys out? Yeah. Check us out. Farcanada.org. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you, Angie. I really, really appreciate Thanks your a lot, time Alex. and everyone make sure to check out, um, Far Canada and we can, we can learn together. So thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. By tapping into the human behind addiction and mental health, we can empower those suffering by creating a culture of empathy and support. 
You can find more episodes of Tapping Into the Human and resources about addiction and mental health by following The Albertus Project on social media, at Albertus Project and at www.albertusproject.org. Thank you.